Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. So before we start our interview with Dr. Mothersbaugh, we want to just go over some stuff that's been happening in the optometry world, like the Bosch and Loam infused daily contact lenses got FDA approval and these contact lenses are hopefully going to be out by the end of 2020. So the Bosch and Loam infused daily sci-high lens is going to be um, a next generation contact lens material called Califilcon A. <laughs> so it's basically designed to meet the needs of contact lens wearers, especially the ones that have dryness. And Bosch and Loam is also stating that these contact lenses are going to have outstanding breathability for healthy lens wear and high definition optics. And so, wait, so the DK value is 510? Is that what? No, no, no. That's a 510 clearance. <laughs> oh, I was like, it's <laughs> like, is it, is the lens even there? I know. It's like someone constantly breathing oxygen into this. Like, it's like an oxygen chamber contact lens. This is so exciting. It's like when the Sci High came out, everyone was so excited. So now it's a new material that's coming out. So it's going to be. Yeah. Interesting to see what this material holds in the future. I want to know the details. Like, what's the DK value? What's the DKT value? I haven't really found any other information. I tried to search the contact lens, and honestly, it's a lot of just this, like, FDA approval type of article so far. Um, I haven't found any DK values or any other information, but what I'm assuming right now, if it got approval by the FDA, I'm assuming it's only going to be available in the U.S. by the end of 2020. I don't know if Bosch and Loam is going to launch this in Canada anytime soon or if we're going to have to wait a little bit longer because Health Canada hasn't reported anything. I just tried to Google this material, Califilcon A, and all the information is vague AF. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, okay, but I don't know. Maybe so there's still no DK Yeah, value. there's no, maybe more details will come out. Well, I mean, to be honest, like, do you really expect any contact lens company to create a new daily lens and have it be a shit DK value? <laughs> but that's like, why I was like, like I, would, if I this, would kind of be like, why? If this DK value was actually 510, I'd be like, oh, this is my new go-to <laughs> lens. Like, you guys will not feel any dryness. You won't even feel your own eyeballs at this point. <laughs> but I mean, I'm assuming like it's going to have to be a, a higher DK value than than current lenses what's the highest dk value like something 140 50 or something like that right so what if it's just like 152 this is the new like dk value of this. hey it's higher right but then i feel like if they go even higher it's gonna be like a very thin then yeah super flimsy. you know how even like daily's total one a lot of people even though it's like the most breathable a lot of people have a hard time getting it in and getting it out and it's so slippery. That's the thing. That's why Deepon's like, you're not even going to feel it. You're not going to feel your eyeball. You're not going to feel anything. It's, it's going to be like air. You just take a pocket of air like, and you just no, it will be. stick it on your eye. Oh my God. <laughs> this is funny. Okay. It's interesting that they talk about like a new optics. They say it's going to be improved yeah, that would optics be, of the contact that would be lens. cool to know. I think that's yeah. what um, catches my attention. 
because then like we always like tell our patients like the vision with the glasses is not going to be the same with contact lenses. So all we know is that there's this new lens coming out. The material is Califilcon A. And the DK is probably 500. (laughs) (laughs) Crossed fingers. Don't quote us on that. And it's going to be out in the States um, at the end of 2020. Um, And then for offices that are reopening again, there's actually a really great website for, you know, U.S. clinics that I found called reopeneyecare.com. Um, this website basically is like your one-stop shop for all articles that are all over the web right now on how you can start to open up your practice again. And they have like marketing materials that you can download for free that basically tell your patients that your clinic is open. They have calculator tools for figuring out how much you know cash flow you're going to get in a different scenario with reduced business. They have financing articles. They have articles for the rules and regulations, all that kind of stuff. So we'll leave that link for the website in our um, description so that you guys can take a look. And then they also, um, one more important thing that they have is they talk about how to order supplies, PPE supplies. Yes. Um, So I think that's a lot of people are running shortage on supplies too. Yeah. Yeah, it just basically grabbed like, you know, I feel like we kind of mentioned this like on our Instagram a while back, like when COVID hit, there was just so much information being thrown at us. And it was just so overwhelming because every single media outlet or every single website and podcast was just giving so much information, like you really didn't know what to do. And this one website kind of took all those articles from different websites and then put it in one place so that you can just search whatever you need to reopen your clinic on this website. So I think the equivalent to that website in Canada is iCare Business Canada. It's not as organized as that website, but it still gives a lot of articles on how to reopen or how to manage your staff. And um, iCare Business Canada basically kind of helps practices in Canada understand how to uh, reopen in terms of practices and business And just to clarify, the website is iCareBusiness.ca. I want to give a shout out to all of our listeners for Four Eyes because I feel like we're still such a baby podcast. Like we've only honestly really been out for what, like three months now. And we've seen our podcast really grow. And it's all because of you guys, like our listeners our Four Eyes family, everyone that's supporting us, you know, we're so grateful and thankful for that. And I just want to give a shout out to like all of the international listeners that we have because our podcast does focus on U.S. and Canadian optometry and we're still working on that alone, like trying to do research and seeing how we can relate the two countries. And, you know, as our podcast grows, hopefully we can start incorporating more international optometry So shout out to like our listeners in Morocco, Mexico, the UK, Australia, Germany, Estonia, Italy, Sweden, Jordan, Nigeria, South Africa, Philippines, France, Turkey, Qatar, India, and Bulgaria. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening to Four Eyes and supporting us. We just wanted to make sure you guys know that you're recognized too, aside from all of our US and Canadian listeners. Today, we're talking with Dr. Eric Mothersbaugh, who is the Dean of Student Affairs at the Illinois College of Optometry. 
After graduating from ICO himself, Dr. Mothersbaugh pursued a career in academic optometry and has stayed with ICO since then. And we brought him on Four Eyes today to share his experience in academic optometry and to dive deeper into why he believes that human interaction is so important to have alongside eye care. Once again, this interview was recorded over Zoom, so apologies in advance for any audio lag or distorted sounds. We hope you guys learned something from this today and enjoy. Can you tell our listeners who might not know you just a little bit more about yourself in general? Yeah, so my name's Eric Mothersbaugh. I um, am a, I'm an optometrist, first and foremost. I graduated from Illinois College of Optometry in 2012. Uh, since I got my OD degree from ICO, I've actually remained on campus for the entire first eight years of my career. I, um, I did residency there right after graduation in primary care and ocular disease. Uh, and then got hired for a full-time faculty post after that. Um, I did that for a little over five years. Um, and then last fall, or fall before last, uh, 2018, I got a, a promotion, made a switch over to administration. So my current uh, role and title is Dean of Student Affairs, and that's you know primarily student services related stuff. Um, admissions, recruiting being a big piece of it, but then also, of course, um, you know, serving our, our students on campus in basically everything non-academic. I taught a course in optics, and yes. now I do a whole <laughs> bunch of admissions interviews every week. So I feel like I've, yeah. uh, I've kind of seen it from every possible angle, so, or almost every possible angle. <laughs> oh, yeah. We remember you as our optics teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and ethics. Don't forget yes, ethics. ethics. 8 a.m. Yeah. And 7 a.m. I had to, um, when, I, when I got the promotion, I actually wrote a formal letter of resignation for my full-time faculty position. Yeah. Uh, and then our, our dean, Stephanie Mesner, hired me about 20 minutes later for a part-time faculty position. So I've got, you know, my, my student affairs role is my full-time job, but then I, I do an extra basically like 10 to 20% on top of that, which is um, enough to do one clinic session working with students in, in okay. primary care. Wow. Um, I do that one, once per week and, uh, and teaching ethics too is another part of that. So um, all that together um, keeps me plenty busy for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that kind of goes to our first question. So like you did a residency in ocular disease and like primary care. So how did the career in academia like where did this come from? Like, did you know during optometry school that you were going to choose this career or this just kind of as opportunities came up, you took it? Uh, I guess a little bit of both. It was um, when I first came to optometry school, I certainly had no intention. Quite frankly, I hadn't really even thought through that that was a way that it could be used. I mean, like, I certainly hadn't really considered that a career path for myself. I was kind of operating under the impression that I had been since I was in, you know, middle school, high school age, first getting interested in the profession was that I'm going to get my degree, I'm going to move to, you know, some sort of suburban area, okay. hang up my shingle and, and do a, a, a small private practice sort of thing, either solo or with a small group of two or three people, kind of what I had in mind. Um, and it was during my my first like weekly clinical assignment was during my second year when I was seeing patients regularly for the first time. And just kind of based on sheer luck of the draw, I guess, I was paired with an attending that uh, I ended up having a really good relationship with. And um, 
in working with them, it just kind of planted the idea in my head, like, wow, I feel like the attending docs actually have a pretty cool job. They essentially step into the exam for the fun parts of it. Uh, They're, you know, (laughs) managing high level, complex medical cases and also getting to, you know, be a teacher at the same time and just kind of be like surrounded by motivated young people all the time. And that was when I started to realize that maybe it could be for me. Um, And it ended up all, uh, you know, that paired with just some kind of lucky timing along the way of things being available when they are. And yeah, grateful to, you know, mentors along the way that have kind of helped coach me through the process. Also kind of going on top of that, what are some pros and cons of having uh, this type of career, you would say? Every once in a while around, usually around this time of year, actually, is when fourth years and third years or third years are thinking about residencies, fourth years are um, either already matched with one and and moving up. So I I get questions like this somewhat regularly of like, you know, how do I know if it's right for me, basically? Um, And I think there's there's definitely pros and cons to being in academia and it can really be exhausting if you're not into it so anyone who is trying to make choices for reasons other than i'm passionate about teaching uh it, it's going to be hard for the pros to to balance that out if you don't truly have that um that kind of underlying drive to want to contribute to the profession in that way Certainly uh, things on the pro side, I mean, I already kind of rattled a couple of them off a minute ago is um, being around motivated people all the time uh, and, and, you know, getting energy from teaching and being, you know, valuing not just the doctor patient relationship, but also that mentor mentee relationship that comes in working with students directly. I, I think a huge pro is that it's, it's a very layered thing and there's a reward kind of feedback mechanism um, in addition to the standard doctor-patient one that every optometrist experiences. I think that's a huge rewarding thing. Another, another big pro um, for people with U.S. federal loans anyway, uh, such as myself, is um, I'm enrolled in a pretty generous loan forgiveness program uh, because I, I'm employed by ICO, and ICO is a qualified not-for-profit. I'm uh, a little over seven years now into a 10-year track to have my debt forgiven. Uh, so I'm, I'm on an income-based repayment plan. I'm still paying my loans every month. It's calculated based on income. And um, when I hit the 10-year mark, I'll be eligible to apply for forgiveness, whereas the, the kind of standard versions of those programs are somewhere between 20 and 30 years, depending on exactly which one you're in. So you know, the, the starting salary for, and especially like a new, like, you know, entry level instructor, assistant professor in academia is going to be lower than what someone could stand to make in the private sector, corporate sector of optometry. But when you extrapolate the, you know, savings on loan forgiveness over that 10 year period, um, it's actually not that far off. Biggest con, I think, like what a lot of optometrists feel is that work doesn't end when work ends. Um, you're always on call in some capacity, whether it be actually like legit on call for patient care or students uh, sending texts and emails and, and stuff at, at all hours of the night. So um, a, ch- a challenge for me early on was developing like clear, healthy boundaries for myself as far as at what level and at what times I'm going to engage with people. And what I learned along the way was being strict with myself about setting those boundaries, people respected them. It was just, if I didn't set a boundary, then nobody was going to respect that boundary that wasn't set. Um, I guess another one is um, just like politics. 
of large institutions. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, I mean, if you, yeah. it, you know, if, if, if I was in solo practice, certainly, or in, you know, in practice with just two or three other partners, um, there's not as much red tape to get through and not as many personalities to have to understand and kind of uh, balance when difficult decisions are being made. I feel like to be a faculty member, you need to be a family person because you're, you're working every day with a huge group of people that you see every single day during and even after work. So it's like, it's like a big family You have cousins, you have your siblings, you have your parents, you have your little kids and you just have to manage everyone like a big family. I feel that sense when you're working at a school everyone has such a different dynamic and you have to be able to handle everyone just like a family reunion kind of a thing. Yeah, there's definitely, I've definitely experienced a, a version of that. It's, you know, and it, it, I think the, um, the, the only piece that I would probably disagree with there is the piece about having kids. I try really hard to have it not be that way um, because mm-hmm. stu- students in optometry school are adults and that's, you know, this, this is me, the ethics person talking now, but one concept that I try really hard to avoid when I'm interacting with students is paternalism. This idea of, I've been there before, I've done it, you haven't, I know better than you, sit down, shut up, um, sort of like parenting um, that can, I think, at, this, at the graduate level be disruptive to education. Yeah. Um, but uh, aside from that piece, I'm definitely right there with you on having like a bunch of cousins and siblings. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> And like, and for, um, for better, for better and for worse, right? Like, it's a lot of dynamics to keep in play, but it's also like some of my absolute best friends I, yeah. I have been working with for almost a decade now. Yeah, yeah. Aside from being able to manage living with a family, what other um, qualifications or characteristics, interests would you need to have a successful career in academia? You know, patience and passion, I think, is going to be enough to, to carry most people through it. Um, you can tell when someone kind of doesn't want to be there. Um, I, I've experienced as a, as a student uh, on, you know, on rotations and from a student's perspective that I think that can be a demoralizing thing to be taught by somebody who you get the sense that they're just really not into it or they're having a tough day. Like, everybody has a tough day, but you know what I mean? whatever the opposite of that is, I would say is a characteristic, like somebody who truly wants to be there and not only feels that way, but make takes measures to actively show people that they care as well. Like I'm sure if you survey a whole bunch of faculty members, you're not going to get people saying like, Oh no, I don't like my job or I, you know, I, I don't care about teaching. People wouldn't be in the profession if they wouldn't do it. But I think there's a difference between feeling it and actively showing it, reminding Mm -hmm. people that you're there because you care about them. Very true. And I guess it was because you're from, you were from ICO anyways, I feel like, was it a very comfortable transition into becoming a faculty member of ICO from just graduating as a resident and, you know, former student? Yes and no. There, there were pieces that um, definitely were comfortable and seamless, like just kind of not having to, you know, learn a bunch of HR systems and uh, electronic health records and uh, payroll stuff. I mean, certainly not having to do any of that um, over again was made the transition a little bit easier. Not having to move apartments made the transition a little easier. But um, 
there were some things that were difficult as well. Um, it, it, one thing was, I think early on, I, I, I realized pretty quickly that I had to make sure that I was asking questions because a lot of times folks um, that I was either, you know, reporting to or working with, I think um, either thought I knew things that I didn't know yet or, or, you know, maybe assumed that I had already learned something from somebody else, whether I had done that or not, based on who a previous supervisor was. Um, so I, I had to make sure I was making a conscious effort to advocate for myself during the transition to um, make sure that my questions got answered and that I you know, knew what I was doing, which um, for me, it's, uh, that could be a little hard sometimes. It took me well into my 20s before I learned how to ask for help uh, regularly and in a healthy way. Um, but I, I got better at that along the way. And um, the, the thing that I was probably most scared about um, in making the transition was especially having been a student there um, was, you know, I developed close friendships with people that I went to school with. And now the dynamics were going to be changing where possibly I was going to be grading them or, or, you know, something to that effect too. And it turned out that that was a lot of anxiety that was in my head and everybody jumped on board pretty quickly. And it was never really that big of a deal. Um, I didn't feel like I was ever disrespected by anybody um, because we had been friends in a different capacity before. Okay. So to switch gears a little bit, can you tell us what a typical day looks like during the pandemic for you? So uh, everybody's remote, or all, I should say almost everybody's remote. On any given day, there is some activity on campus, but um, it's a skeleton crew. It's um, you know uh, checking mail a couple times a week. It's facilities doing management of the physical plant. It's security staffing. Um, and then uh, we've done... Uh, I think two or three days of patient care um, is all, and the, the residents are uh, triaging over the phone. Uh, certainly, there's you know emergency protocols mm -hmm. in place for anybody that needs to actively be seen. But there's been a couple of days that um, the folks in the I Institute have actually scheduled patients for post-ops, and so there's been a couple of days like that. Um, I I personally have not been to campus since the. 17th of March, I think was the last day that I was there. Maybe that whatever that Thursday or Friday was around there. And I've been doing everything completely remote since then. Um, I told you before, I've, you know, I've got part-time faculty status now. I actually um, opted out of doing, um, participating in the online clinic learning um, just because my plate's been full with other stuff. My, my biggest task has been um, converting admissions interviews and visits to um, to remote. Uh, so it's weird to even call it a visit because it, it isn't one. Um, but we've uh, we've interviewed over 40 people since um, since we left um, and been using platforms like this one, uh, getting people all you know in a group call together um, to um, you know introduce them to the team, get them to meet each other and everything, and then doing one-on-one -on -one interviews with faculty members after that. But that's been, um, I've definitely had my hands full. I mean, my, my job is to try and, you know, I'm not a salesperson, but my job is basically to sell ICO and get them to choose us over other schools. Yeah. And um, the idea of committing to four years and that kind of debt um, sight unseen is, um, absolutely fascinating to me. Um, so it's been, um, it's been pretty fun, I guess, to, mm -hmm. to watch that all unfold. Is that pretty challenging? Because I know personally, I made the decision to come to ICO after the tour of the school. So I feel like that's a big 
factor maybe in mm -hmm. some prospective students' decisions is they want to see the clinic, they want to see the dorm rooms, they want to see, you know, the classroom size, the labs, they want to see all of those things. Is there any alternative that the students get to see during the online interviews, like pictures yeah, we, or videos? Yeah, you, know, you know, fortunately for us, um, our comms team has been pretty active over the last several years in putting together a, a good digital platform um, for us. So we've, we've already got uh, things that were recorded um, for, you know, virtual tours around campus and stuff like that. Certainly when they were made, it was not with the intention that this would be the purpose they would serve. Um, as a replacement for it, but I think um, I think we do a pretty good job showing who we are to to students with our you know website and social channels and stuff. But yeah, it's been I mean that that's been the biggest challenge of it is it's obviously such a like one of the things that we love doing the most is showing off our clinic, showing off our city. So it's I feel like the you know the most inherent selling points of the institution are um, are not as present as they have been. Like in the shadows now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that, that's been the challenge. I think that's why it's been kind of fun for me to try and um, replicate that. I will say though, that definitely right there with you, it would be hard for me to make that decision without, um, without seeing it. And it certainly was part of what uh, kind of sealed the deal for me in deciding that I had the right place uh, when it was time for me to decide to go to ICO. But that said, like this is happening equally to everybody across the board. So for the students, it's, you know, they're still, they still get a head to head comparison, I guess, as if they're mm -hmm. interviewing multiple places, maybe even, you know, how well a school is handling it um, is, yeah. ends up being a part of the factor in their decision too. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Do you have to say, I was really, when I like interviewed with ICO, watching the videos of day the life. year that we, yeah day in a life i yeah. that gave so much better perspective and then i watched it again after first year i was like this is very accurate <laughs> of like <laughs> what happened like the roller coaster yeah. of everything and it was neat i really like the day in the life yeah it's pretty cool they did a um uh i'll say we we, we did a, a reboot of that uh, recently with a couple students that are in their third year now so um we'll see yep. if there ends up being a, a third edition that. yeah yep. So you already did go over what your job looks like right now during the pandemic. Um, how do you feel like your role as the Dean of Student Affairs will change once the pandemic is over? My hope is that across the board, uh, we all learn some valuable lessons from this. I think, I think a lot of stuff's going to change at ICO. Um, I think you know, we, we've certainly now lived and breathed what telecommuting is and isn't like. And I think there's going to be some, some lasting changes there, depending on position, depending on rank and, and all that, and exactly what job responsibilities are. But I haven't quite figured out how much of that will directly apply to student affairs or not. But um, that's something that that's one thing that my head's always on as a manager of a, of a team of people now is keeping in mind these kind of work-life balance sort of things that can be, um, you know, incentives to make employees good employees um, if, if leveraged properly. Um, specifically, my, I mean, my main number one job is being a student advocate. Like that, that's what I do for a living. Um, so I don't think that much is going to directly change for me. I'm very anxious to get back onto campus as soon as possible. I love being there. But I think um, part of what we'll be doing on the, you know, kind of student support, student success side is uh, helping people navigate with 
uh, all the stuff that you know students uh, navigate, all the stuff that's come up for them and gone on during this time. Everybody's still in like survival mode right now, and I think once the dust does settle, um, things do start to go back to whatever normal is. Um, I think there's probably going to be some um, emotional stuff to unpack for a lot of people, uh, not just students, but uh, but that's you know primarily my work is is with them. I feel like I, I feel like I'm not actually answering your questions. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. no, you are. <laughs> This is, yeah, this is like exactly what we wanted to know. You actually told us more than what we wanted to ask you just because it's more, I feel like it's more interesting for us than possibly some of our listeners because we are also from ICO and um, it's just nice to hear how the school is handling everything because it's a big school too. So there's just a lot of people that have been affected. And I think, um, I mean, Obviously, nobody has a playbook for anything like this. Everybody's just doing the best they can. We've certainly been committed to sticking to the facts and following what the CDC is saying and following the mandates that are brought down by the federal government and our state government. And um, I think, um, I mean, having Dr. Collip at the helm of, of the whole institution, knowing that he's got a student affairs background, it's all very, you know, students first mentality. And um, I've, I've been, you know, happy to be at a place that has that as its core philosophy, because yeah. that's, that's who I am too. In, like in our mental health episode, you were mentioned quite a bit because you're a huge advocate for mental health awareness. Has the optometry school curriculum changed anyhow, or have any additional resources being implemented more into mental health awareness? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's, uh, I mean, I think not just mental health, but the concept mm-hmm. of student success in general yeah. has been a huge uh, focus of ICO in the last couple of years. And um, quite frankly, I think it's a part of the reason that I was chosen for the, the job that I'm in is because during that interview process, it's something I spoke very, um, very openly about and had some, some ideas of, of things that I thought um, could be helpful to implement to make students more likely to be successful. Um, you know, it's, it's a rigorous program. You, you know, um, probably better than anybody having just recently finished it. We do a good job in, I think, letting people know how rigorous it's going to be. Um, and we keep high standards throughout the admissions process so that people who are getting accepted, we know based on kind of the statistics of it all have a, you know, a high likelihood of getting through successfully, but, it's certainly much more complex than that. Um, and I think it's, I think it's always been that way, but I'm going to sound judgmental of previous generations uh, in, in saying this, but I think um, I was raised to basically believe that if you work hard, you, you can do it. This sort of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, like, and I don't begrudge my parents for that because I think that, you know, grit or whatever kind of uh, terminology you want to use, I think it's a valuable trait, but I'm so grateful for your generation for helping us all move through that and actually be able to openly admit, accept, and discuss that there are barriers to success that are beyond just sheer brute force will or like intellectual horsepower or something yeah. like that. Smart, hardworking, gritty people still struggle. Yeah. And I think that's something that we've been really dedicated to 
understanding better and allocating resources to to assist in. So uh, in the the last couple of years, we've launched a you know we've launched a counseling program. We've um, ramped up our uh, tutoring program to include not just like hey let's sit down one on one and go through biochemistry notes together, but actually having like a peer mentoring sort of dynamic in that too. That um, is called the academic coaching program, where it's like it could range from like having an accountability buddy to make sure that you're you know, going to sleep when you want to and eating and exercising and all that, um, all the way up to, hey, you know, I don't feel comfortable um, uh, or I feel ashamed to go talk to Dr. So-and-so about this exam. Can you kind of help me navigate that sort of mentorship? Another program that you kind of didn't mention, but I thought was really helpful at ICU was the Big Brother, Big Sister program. Yeah, I felt like it kind of helped with the first years a lot that they kind of talked to somebody who already went through it you know, and I think it, when they were anxious, they could just kind of message them. And it's because your fellow peers are kind of going through the same thing, Mm -hmm. but kind of having somebody to mentor or somebody that's there to morally support you. um, I think that was a really good program as well that ICO offers. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, I think the, over time, my, one of my hopes is to better integrate that program with this academic coaching stuff and also with um, some things that we've dabbled in and tried in the past with having uh, like faculty, small group advisors and mentors and stuff like that. Um, I think there's an opportunity there to get all that stuff talking to each other a little bit more um, so that rather than just like here, this is your assigned person um, I hope you like them. Otherwise, you're going to have to figure it out on your own. Having um, having kind of laid out from the get go that people have di- multiple different avenues to to get the help that they need, knowing that each individual might um, navigate those waters a little bit differently um, is yeah. a, is a huge priority for me. Yeah. So your bio on ICO's website mentions that you strive to teach human interactions alongside with eye care. Can you expand on what this means and how yeah. you implement this teaching to your students? Sure. Sorry, I cut you off. Um, no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So that it's funny. Uh, I had to actually like look myself up on ICO's website because uh, I it, there used to be a whole like faculty page, uh, mm-hmm. and then when that changed, that now it's just like a photo of me. But they did a like a video profile thing a, a few yeah. years ago when I was um, that was when I was probably like two or three years into my faculty role, and uh, that piece about you know, teaching human interaction along with patient care. I, I was probably 27 or 28 when I said that. Um, but so it means nothing uh, now. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it, it was just, it was cool to like re, re-hear my, my past self talk about that because I think that's like, that is at the core of who I see myself as, as an educator. Um, and I think it's a big part of why I've made the move from faculty to administration and working in student affairs now. Where it came from at that time and kind of the core of my like teaching philosophy um, is really rooted in helping students understand the most complicated pieces of patient care. Um, and I know that we've got a tough school um, and I know that we've got faculty who quite frankly, know their shit and teach it well. Um, I don't worry for a minute about any of our graduates not having the tools that they need to diagnose and treat patients. 
it's all pretty flow charty, honestly. I, I, I don't mean to just dismiss it and say that it's easy because it's definitely not. But the piece that is much, much less easy to master is actually being able to take that knowledge and package it and put it in a way that you can educate the patient and help them truly understand what it is that's expected of them. Like it, glaucoma is the, the, the main example that comes to mind is how do I tell you about this chronic, potentially blinding condition um, that's going to require an action item from you every day? And how do I, how do I get that across in a way that doesn't abuse like fear mongering and is truly going to, you know, inspire and get that action from the patient that they're going to need to do while also boosting their confidence in me and, you know, be someone that I can have a continuing relationship with for, for years and years, seeing them every three, four months for forever. Um, and that piece of it, it's like, it's not just about the word choice, right? There's no script that you can memorize that's going to make that go seamlessly every time. It's about reading the room and, um, you know, giving things in small bits and using stuff like the sandwiching technique. It's, you know, that the art of doing all of that is so much more complicated than the actual like nuts and bolts science of patient care. Um, so that's something that, I try to put at the front of my teaching style. So um, I, Alex and I work together in the clinic, but one of, uh, one of the ways that, uh, that I would try to implement that as an attending is, you know, once the students get to a certain point and they've demonstrated that they clearly know how to do the things, it's okay, well, now I want you to um, basically, you know, treat this as your patient with me as your resource. And that includes the education at the end of it, where I'm going to sit back and listen in while you do your thing. And then we're going to um, break down your word choice and your tone and your body language and all that afterwards. And, you know, fast forward now several years into, into the future, um, that same thing applies not just to patient care, but also in helping students interact with faculty members and, um, and their peers that they might be having troubles with. Um, it's, it's a very, you know, it, since so much of it is centered around communication, verbal and nonverbal, it, that same philosophy applies seamlessly to student affairs. So that's been um, something I've realized along the way, definitely. Yeah. Having chairside manner when you're in clinic is a skill that not everybody can learn. Unfortunately, some people just have it and some people don't. But the people that have it and then are also good in their clinical <laughs> skills are those exceptional doctors versus, yep. you know, everyone can learn the clinical skills. And, and be a, be a good, good enough doctor, but to have that interaction with every patient and at every age. So if you can get, get along with your five-year-old and if you can get along with your 95-year-old, you know, you're making an impact on these patients compared to someone who's just doing the clinical skills. And totally. Yeah. I was just gonna say, if you, and if you think about that from the patient's perspective too, they're never going to know whether you did a good job on the eye exam. They're, they're going to assume yeah. that you did fine because that, you know, your diploma on the wall says that you're qualified to do it. But yeah. what they're going to remember is how they interacted with you. And that's what's going to determine whether they recommend you and whether they come back. There was an article. I can't remember it now. Um, I was listening to a Try Not to Blink podcast episode, and they were talking about ways to avoid... Uh, getting sued basically from your patient and I think it was right and it was 
the number one reason why someone was sued was not because they did something wrong at the eye mm -hmm. exam, but because the patient did not like the doctor. And you can kind of avoid like getting a lawsuit just from having a good relationship with your patient. Actually, totally. remember that podcast? I think they were talking about physicians in general as well. Yes. Levels of optometrists. And they were talking about like, just kind of like spending the extra couple or more minutes with your patients and just kind of explaining it a little bit better. It saved you from a lawsuit. Even if, even if you misdiagnose them, if the patient liked you, they, they're like, okay, like, I like that doctor. They're less inclined to see you. And yeah. I think that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't mean to suggest that like, Hey, if you're charming enough, everything's going to be totally <laughs> fine. And, 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 you, and you can be, you can be completely incompetent. Um, but I do think, you know, not just with patients, but with any human interaction, for me, it's with students and, and uh, you know, colleagues at, at work all the time. Like, I think everything would be a little bit easier if people just gave each other some trust and the benefit of the doubt more often. Um, you know, times like this with all the uncertainty of in the world going on with the pandemic and other things, it's, um, I can feel that that is harder to come by. Um, I think when, when times get tough, times get tough and the stressors are high, people like shield up and go into survival, you know, protection mode. And, um, it could be a difficult thing to, to break through, but at least demonstrating that forward to other people. Um, I think it, it helps kind of in some subconscious nonverbal ways. It signals that, Hey, this is a safe communication and um, there's no reason not to feel comfortable opening up or getting at, like, let's actually get to the core of what the problem is uh, that's going on. Yeah. So talking about like, how you like to be an attending and everything. I do want to just say that I really enjoyed having you as an attending because I felt like during that time, like you trusted me enough to be able to talk to the patient at that point. And then we talked about it later. So that, I think that even helped more with like confidence and stuff rather than just hearing um, the attending talk and whatnot. And so I definitely valued that a lot and definitely stuck with me like throughout the rest of ICO. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, 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 the only thing I'll reject is the way that the comment was, was directed as if it was something that I did for you. I mean, I think that it's, it's earned the trust was a two way street mm -hmm. certainly not, you know, not every student is, uh, is ready for that. Uh, but um, I think one of the responsibilities of the educator is, you know, knowing that at any given time you're working with a handful of students that might all, even though they're at the same academic level, they might be at different, uh, different preparedness levels for that sort of engagement. And, um, being able to have a close enough relationship with each of them to know, um, you know, who's who's ready for what is um, makes it makes it pretty easy. Well, I think that's pretty much most of the questions that we had. I mean, we learned a lot more than we were expecting to, which is really nice. And it was so nice to have a conversation with you again after so long. This is going to be really I think this is going to be really helpful for um, new grads and then students. So. Mm -hmm. A career in academics is always focused on the salary and it's really hard to look at any other part of an academic career um, when you're a, still a student and you have all those loans on your mind. So I think everything that you talked about today is going to be really helpful for someone to make their decision or to pursue 
an academic career in optometry because there are so many benefits to it yeah. that you pretty much highlighted today. So thank you so much, Dr. Mothersbaugh. Of course. On. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate you um, inviting me to, to be on and uh, I, I really enjoyed just getting to see your faces and catch up for a while too. So see ya. Bye. 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 Bye.